Hey, we're week three of Mark, uh, our Mark series, Gospel Mark. So open up your Bibles to chapter one, and we'll dive in. Ephesians 4, uh, the Apostle Paul tells us that Christ gives the church evangelists and shepherds and pastors and teachers all to equip the, work, uh, the, the saints for the work of the ministry. And uh, I've always looked at that list in my own life. This is just a confession thing, and I've envied certain gifts. I don't know if you're one of those people envy, like... I have always wished I was an evangelist, not Billy Graham, mind you, just, you know, those people who, for whatever reason, people just gravitate to them, and they, they basically say, somehow I'm looking at your face, and you're to tell me about Jesus, and that never happens to me um, for some reason, but I've always envied that from a distance, um, and obviously, God knows what he's doing with the church. He's precisely given us all types of people so that in the makeup of a, of a local assembly, everything that we need to accomplish developing the saints for the work of the service is there. So there are evangelists here, and there are teachers and preachers and leaders and shepherds and, and all those types of, of things. There is not one single person, however, who uh, is supremely gifted enough to contain all the things that God has given the church to minister to one another, right? Except for one. Jesus. If you ever doubt about an answer, just go with Jesus. It usually typically works. Jesus is the supremely gifted one. He's the ultimate evangelist. He's the ultimate teacher. He's the best small group leader the world has ever seen. He is, uh, he is the best counselor, the best listener. He, he has a prayer life that would blow your mind. Jesus is the ultimate in, in gift expression we've ever seen. And so we are in this, this study of Mark, and right now we begin to look at his life and his ministry, his words and his actions. So if you want to see his giftedness on display and how he was from God for men, then we get to see it starting today. Um, before we get into it, let me just rewind a little bit of uh, the 13 verses. I call them the, the preparation for ministry section of Mark. Obviously, God is going to use his son to do amazing things in this world, but these first 13 verses serve as that preparation time. John the Baptist preparing Israel. The Hebrews say, here he is. Here he is. He is the Lord. Prepare the way of the Lord. And he is so great. He is so otherly. I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. Prepping the people for the message of repentance and faith. Obviously, Jesus being baptized is being prepared by, the, by God himself, saying, this is the Savior. Here he is, and the time is, is now. His ministry begins today. Last week, we saw him go off into the wilderness to be tempted like us in all ways, and yet without sin. To be prepared that way, to understand, to, to show us that he has overcome Satan and sin. And ultimately, we know he will overcome death. All the preparation is over. Now we're into the ministry aspect of it. And so here is... Uh, the very first words in Mark's account of Jesus, so it should uh, be pretty important to us. In verses 14 through 20 is what we're looking at today. Uh, we'll get to it in just a second. I got only two major points to make, but let me just tell you what is happened or has happened that aren't revealed here in this text. I told you when we started this series that Mark is the uh, fast paced gospel writer. Remember that he's the guy who's just flying over stuff and he's hitting on the uh, kind of the servant heart of Jesus, uh, the suffering servant. Um, but there's so many things that have happened already that he has just kind of skipped over. For instance, if you go to John's gospel, the first four chapters um, have already taken place by the time we pick up the story here. 
So things like the first invitation of Jesus or introduction of Jesus to the disciples, we know the men as disciples, happened already. So in the text of John, chapter 2, it says that Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist saw Jesus walking by and said, there goes the Lamb of God. Well, I would think that's pretty intense. So Andrew runs off to follow after Jesus and, and goes and gets his brother, Peter, Simon, and says, hey, let's, I think we found the Messiah. Come with me. That's already happened by the time we get here. We also know um, that wonderful moment where Jesus shows up at the temple and there are money changers in the temple selling animals and things for sacrifices and making a, a real good kind of money exchange and he gets, he gets rightfully angry and overturns the money changers' tables and that's already taken place in the story. You, you know the, the story of Nicodemus where Jesus kind of drops on him this phrase that we're so common with but blew his mind, where he talked about salvation in, this, in these terms. You must be born again. You remember that? And Nicodemus had no clue what he's talking about. How can I enter into my mother's womb again and do this all over again? How is that possible? And, of course, Jesus is talking about something much more grand about how it is to become new. And then that we have that story of the, of the wedding feast, right? And they run out of wine, and it's the first miracle ever recorded, already taken place in John. The Samaritan woman, the sinful woman, who has not one but five husbands. Sinful woman who's out getting water in the midday all by herself because she's ostracized. And Jesus invites her to truth. And she recognizes that he knows her, deeply knows her, and invites others to meet Jesus. All those wonderful stories you're so familiar with have already taken place. In fact, we're probably a year or so, many, many months down the road from the point of his baptism to now. Okay, and that's where Mark, this 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 writer who is fast paced, starts to to introduce us to the words and the work of Jesus. And so there are two points I'm making today. And the first one is about Jesus' message, and the second one is about Jesus' call. So that's the way we're going to break it down. The first uh, section, the message of Jesus, in verses 14 and 15. Let's read it together. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago when we started this Mark study, we kind of told you what the gospel meant to these people. That for them, the gospel word was only used for some kind of victory announcement from the battlefield or some kind of king announcement. This is the first writer ever who points this word towards Jesus this gospel word. And Jesus is here proclaiming this wonderful good news, the gospel. He's preaching this story, this pronouncement of the good news. And verse 15, he tells us the content of his message, what this good news message is. And there's four things I want you to see in verse 15. He says this, saying the time is fulfilled. That's part of Jesus' message. To you, you kind of just skip over it, big deal, but to the Jewish listener, this is huge because Jews have been waiting for, for the promised Messiah for centuries. All the prophecies, all the mysteries, all, all the promises of God, and Jesus is basically saying all the waiting is over. It starts today. Everything that God has said, everything God has done in history, everything was pointing to me is the essence of that statement. Time is fulfilled. Not, hey, it's starting now. It's here now. It's happened. Everything that world history has pointed to, the pinnacle center point of everything, is me here. And it's fulfilled. So that's how they heard it. Talk about a powerful opening sentence. Um, the most unique time in all of history. Now, every person 
has the, on the calendar these days were special to me. If you're wise, it's your marriage. Um, just kidding. Um, four sons, okay? Five important dates in my life. I don't know how many dates you have in your life that would rank in the highest. This is the ultimate date for every human who's ever lived. The creator showed up on a rescue mission for sin and sinners. This is it. Time is fulfilled. Look at the second phrase he says is a part of the content of this good news story. He says in verse 15, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom isn't a place. And I suppose you're okay with it, but for the Jews, they were thinking, okay, now we're going to get this Messiah ruler leader who's going to get us out of the oppression of Rome, who's going to set up and establish our kingdom forever, and we're going to have prosperity and do really well as a people group. And, and Jesus isn't talking about the kingdom that you can touch. He's talking, he's talking about the sovereign rule and reign of the one and only, King Jesus himself. That's who he's, that's who he's talking about. In, in other words, Jesus enters the scene in human history, as mind-blowing as this is, just listen, the creator becomes creation, and as, as it were, a person, a man, to communicate. The eternal one jumps into this time sequence to communicate to the objects of his love. That's what's happened here. The kingdom of God is at hand, and he's coming to achieve every purpose with which he has sovereignly planned to take place. Some people make a mistake and think that somehow what's happening here are the events of sequence. Like, for instance, um, garden was good. Adam Eve had it made. They screwed it up. God's scrambling for plan B. Jesus, hurry up, get down there. They messed it all up. And now we are in the sequence of time, God trying to sort out man's problem. That's not how this is going down. The Bible says before the foundations of the world, God foreloved a people. Before you and I ever were, God had a plan. Everything's happening now. The kingdom of God has come. The kingdom's at hand. The time is fulfilled. I think it's so awesome that God has entered this place for us. So just think of it this way, that God's power, God's control, God's plan have come near, and Jesus says, you can touch it. Here, I am God's plan. I am the reason. Now, stop for just a second. If, you're, if you like to see kind of obvious conclusions, then if Jesus says the time's fulfilled in me and I'm the king this kingdom's about and I'm here for those reasons, if that's true, then doesn't it demand a response? Yes. No mystery? Yes, of course it demands a response. Of course it does. There are some people who would describe God as this uh, passive gentleman who is, who is just patiently waiting for someone to show him interest. <laughs> you know, like he's just up there going, I wish somebody would love me. Man, if I could be just cool enough for you to hang out with me. And That's not our God. Jesus is the divine one. He is the ruler, the sovereign God of all time. And he came and he wants to reign in the lives of people. Therefore, the next two things he says to the people here in this message fit perfectly with his sovereignty because he commands immediately. Now listen to me. This is the message of the good news. Not only that Jesus is the one and only, he's the focal point of time in history. He's come as the king to rule over a people. Therefore, he has the right to say two words or two phrases, repent and believe in me. He has the right to say that as the king. We know what the word repentance means, don't we? We've talked about it a lot. It's used of a, an about face, a turning from something, turning from sin to God, a reorientation of your mind, new thinking. 
And every story you've ever heard about God doing something in someone's life, even your own story, involves this word, doesn't it? Do you remember? <laughs> Do you remember when, when you saw your sin maybe for the first time as God would see it? You remember how you responded to that, that turning? In fact, I find it so interesting. Everyone can mark the, the moment when at one moment in time, I knew about God but didn't care, and suddenly I'm willing to go all the way to have him. I'm either broken and I have nothing and I'm hurting and I'm lost and I'm lonely, and one moment I'm out and the next moment I'm all in. That moment involved this coming to your senses, this about face, this turning. Something happened called heart change, mind change, your emotions change, your will change, everything changed. We call it radical transformation. Something so cataclysmic happened to the human heart that it went towards God. That's the repentance word. And if it's true that Jesus says the kingdom is at hand and he's the sovereign one come to rule over people, then he has the right to say, repent. He also has the right to say, believe in him. And that's the second phrase I want you to get here in verse 15, to believe in the gospel. Interesting here, that, that phrase believe in doesn't appear anywhere else in the New Testament. And you might think that's, that's overplaying a, a thought. I, I don't think so. I think it's a hugely important because you don't just believe the gospel. Listen to me. You believe in it. And there's a big difference. <laughs> there are so many people who have the facts and figures figured out about Jesus yeah, I understand that the, he claims to be God's son, <clears throat> and I get it. 2,000 years ago, he came to the earth, born in, the, in a manger, uh, born of a virgin. I, I, to, I can tell you the story about him living his life and dying on a cross, and yeah, he died for sin, and there's a big difference between understanding those facts versus believing in those facts. One is mental assess, assessment, you get it, you understand it. The other one is trust and faith and belief and commitment. It's about it's about your change, and there's a huge difference. That's what Jesus calls us to. In fact, doesn't James say, even demons just believe? <laughs> he's, he's calling us to so much more, to put our hope in him, to put our peace in him, to trust him so, so much so that it affects the way we live our life. Um, I think it's worth stopping to make a point. Now, I'm not talking about everywhere in our world, but at least here in Gilbert, Arizona, at least today, it's still not totally strange for someone to say, I'm a Christian. <laughs> you can pick other cities in our country, and that might be a foreign thought or a very strange thought. Clearly, you can pick places in the world where being a Christian is totally under, un, not understood, and they don't get it. But if I walked downtown Gilbert and said, hey, I'm a Christian, somebody out there would go, I have a context for that. I, I, I get that. But let me just say this to you. You might be using the phrase, I'm a Christian, i.e., I believe, but show no signs whatsoever of that belief. Show no faith and, and no joy and no peace. There's no so what to it whatsoever. Maybe you don't believe in it. And it's the, it might sound a little harsh, and I'm not making this judgment, but it's the gracious, most gracious words I could tell you. If you're one of those people who either by proximity to your parents is somehow because they have confession that you just by osmosis get it, or because you're in a church or you're married to someone who is a Christian or you've been in a church your whole life, that does not settle it with God. It has to be yours. You have to believe in Christ. It has to be your hope. It has, he has to be your joy Otherwise, it's not your salvation. Do you understand? Believing in is a huge part of this. 
this wonderful gospel, the word good news. It is a simple yet profound truth that Jesus, the perfect one, came for the imperfect person. He died for the sins of man. He came to pay back himself. How ironic this is, his holy standard for every failure you've ever thought about, every failure you have yet to commit. He is there to pay it all. And this wonderful, wonderful truth happens to us. We have our sin given to him so that it's fully punished at the, at the cross and we receive his righteousness, one we didn't earn and work for. Right? This Theologians call it double imputation. Sin given, righteousness received. That's how we're saved. It's a simple gospel and it starts with recognizing your need. Repent and believe in. Now let's go to verses... Uh, 16 through 20, the call of Jesus. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants. And, and followed him. I'm going to make six observations uh, about the call. For years I read this, and it was just as simple as, okay, Jesus went after some fishermen. They're off to do the work of Jesus. But there's so many little parts to this that help understand God's intentions for us. But let me break it down this way. Number one of, of the call is that the call is personal. The call is personal. Don't miss this point. Here, here in, in, in um, the Jewish vernacular, Jesus was the rabbi. He was the teacher. And in that culture, teachers didn't pursue students. It was the other way around. Students pursue the teacher. They, they would go to the synagogue. They would sit under their tutelage. And here Jesus <laughs> comes after these men intentionally and personally to ask them to follow him, to come after him. He was pursuing them. In fact, no surprise, but that is Jesus' agenda, by the way. Luke tells us to seek and to save the what? He's here to seek the lost. That was my story. I mean, I, I hate to reflect too much if that bores you, but I remember at one point in my life, lost as I could possibly be, and the next moment, feeling like that I found it all. It's his personal pursuit. I, I want to make sure you understand this. He knew the names of Andrew and Simon and James and John. He knew their needs. He knew their fishing business. He knew them. He called them to it, just like he calls every one of us. It's a personal thing. He knows what you're going through and what you can handle, what you can't handle. He knows you intimately. His call couldn't be more personal. It couldn't be more perfect. He knows precisely when to say to every person, follow me. It's intense. So his call is, is personal. His call is also for everyone. Or maybe for the ordinary. It's probably a better way to see it. He calls these regular blue-collar fishermen. Andrew and Simon and James and John. Just Joe Blows. That's all they are. There's nothing special about these guys. They're just hardworking men who have responsibilities and burdens like everybody else. Um... They've got a job to do. They're not highly educated. They're not 
wealthy. They're not movers and shakers of society. They're not particularly religious. They're not in the synagogue when Jesus meets them. They're not teachers, and they probably don't even care. They're just extremely average, (laughs) just like thousands of others of, of Galileans that were there at the time. I've heard people say in my lifetime, when they think about God and his interest for, for them, when somehow evaluate why God would show them any interest and say, he, he's, he's, there's more important people. There's more gifted people. God certainly has got to have an interest in them. They have something to offer. You, you might have heard some of this before. Nothing could be farther from the truth. God loves the average. In fact, I, I, I find it very interesting that most of the places you see these superheroes of the faith, they were completely ordinary men that God did extraordinary things with. And it's, it's true of these men. I think it was uh, Abraham Lincoln who said that God must love the ordinary guy because he certainly made a lot of them. William Barclay, and I think this is the right way to think about it, a man should never think so much of what he is as opposed to what Jesus can make of him, and that's exactly what happened to these men. Nothing. Just average Joe fishermen doing their job, probably taking care of their families, and, and no one would notice. And yet, once they experienced Christ, the world got flipped upside down by them, and here we are reading their recollection of Jesus' words and work. And we probably would mistakenly think, oh, man, they must have been special superhuman abilities and thoughts, and that's not true. The call of God is to the average. That should encourage you, okay? Here's the third thing about the call. The call of Jesus is devastating. I try to think of another way to say this, but I think this is probably pretty good, and you'll probably remember it, but when you hear in verse 17 this phrase, follow me and I will make you what? Fishers of men. Sounds almost motivational, doesn't it? Come after me, we'll go fish men. And you kind of, wow, that's weird, I'll do it. Whatever that is, it's huge. Um, Sounds noble, like some kind of super great task. But you got to understand how the Old Testament ear would hear this. Because there was prophecies written about this idea of fishermen, but it it was not used about God coming to save a people, but God to gather a people to punish for sin. So at best, the way the disciples heard this was uncomfortable, okay? Hey, come with us. Come with me, and we'll go devastate the world. We'll go wreck their lives. And that's, you got to hang in there with me a little bit to get the point. Jesus isn't just using the fisherman language how we normally would use it. He's going on mission. He's going to save the lost world. All true. It's evangelistic. This is all that his intention is, and that's true. But he's also talking about the outcome to the fish. <laughs> I, I, um, I don't get to fish a lot, but I like to fish. When I was a kid, I, I fished all the time. And this never happened to me. I never hooked a fish and pulled it in and took it off the line and it looked at me and said, thank you. <laughs> I still wanted to be caught. Now, I've never fished with nets, but I doubt that they very much jump into the net like your dog does in the back of the seat to get a ride around the neighborhood. That's not how fish respond. They're shocked to realize they're caught. And the conclusion is devastation. I'm dead. I don't know if you saw this yesterday, but on the USA Today, they showed this 16-year-old kid caught uh, almost an 1,100-pound marlin. Did you see this? Huge fish. 
And they sped up the film. It took them a half an hour to land this thing as big as this platform. But guess what happened to the marlin? It died. You should not be surprised. That's the outcome to fish. So when Jesus says, come with me, we're going to go after these men, what he's also saying is beyond the mission and beyond the evangelism of seeing lost people come to Jesus, they're going to have to die. They're going to have to change. Life can't just go on like it's always gone on. They can't just stay fishing with nets and managing the ordinary. Something radical has to change in their life. That's what he had in mind. Now, I'm certain the disciples were a little bit far from that story, but Jesus is very precise in using this analogy. It's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation, and the old is what? Gone, and the new has come. Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, I've been crucified with Christ, and I don't even live anymore. I don't live anymore. Christ lives in me. You, you've heard me say it this way before. Let me just repeat it. Christ didn't come to educate you, to tweak your life and make some adjustments. He didn't come to be helpful. He came to resurrect you. The scriptures say we're dead in our transgressions and sins. Whether you admit it or not, you are completely uh, lacking any spiritual compass whatsoever apart from God. And he came to give you life. To give you life. And the wonderful twist of this whole analogy is we are spiritually dead and Jesus makes us alive. But the way he does that is to devastate us. To take away everything that we had our hope in. All of our dreams in. All of our faith in. To put it in him and that's what makes us, that death makes us alive. Does that make sense? Putting de to death the old you to raise the life the new you. Let me look at the fourth thing here, observation of the call. The call of Jesus is immediate. Verse 18 tells us that. He said, follow, and they did. Now, I'm going to read between the lines here, but it'll make sense. I want you to see how these guys' hearts were changed. Nobody does anything like this unless they want to. Agreed? There was no gun held to John's head, no gun held to James. Nobody was threatening these men. He said, follow me and I'll make you fishers. Something inside of their heart said, yep, that's worth it. Something happened to their affections. And you know what happened. The God who is sovereign over all things changed their want to. Their want to at one point said, no, I'd rather fish. I'd rather take care of myself. And immediately when the king of glory says, come after me, their heart changed. And that's how it works. That's how the spiritual life happens to us. Don't you remember? That's so ironic that everything we see here is, is lived out in our own lives. Far from him at one moment, don't want anything more the next. God changes the heart. There's an urgency to this gospel. Paul says, today's the day of salvation, and here's how this works. Whenever you get that you want him, it is the day of your salvation. Whenever he reveals that to you, you jump. It's an urgency to it. Here's the fifth thing about the call. It's costly. Verses 17 through 20 tells us that they left their nets and followed after Jesus they left their comfort, they left their income, their potential income, they left their reputation. In one case here, it says they left their dad in the boat, they left their family, okay? You might look at this and go, well, what did they have to give up, really? They were just blue-collar fishermen. There wasn't much to lose, so why not? 
And I suppose you could make somewhat of an argument for Peter and Andrew because it doesn't say any more than that they had a net. But, but James and John had a business. Hired hands and father and a boat, and they were working, and Galilee was a fishing community. And so they were making a conscious decision to leave something established, something good. So let me make a jump from their life to your life, okay? I am not suggesting that I know God wants you to follow him by letting go of everything like Andrew and Peter and James and John. That sounds way too radical. And I'm not suggesting that that that's how you follow him. What I am suggesting and saying is that God has the right to ask for everything, doesn't he? The last hour answered the same way. That kind of, I'm afraid to go all the way because I, I think I know what it means Let me just say it again. You don't have to shake your head. I want it to sink in. God has the right to ask for everything, doesn't he? Of course he does. Absolutely everything. And here's the second part of this, and maybe this is more self-revealing than I want it to be, but I don't think I'm alone. If we're honest, he's probably asking more than I'm willing to give. If I'm really honest, What if God said, you're not going to be healthy? What if God said, you're going to lose a loved one? What if God said, you're going to be poor for a while? What if God said, you're going to have to bear a bunch of pain? What if God said, you're going to be so obscure that no one even cares about you? Would I look at that and go, oh, perfect. Sign me up. I I want that. If it's true that he's sovereign, he's the king come, then he has the right to ask for everything. He does. It is so easy for American Christians to sit and listen in services like this. It's so easy to be casual with a faith like this and and to believe all these things. It's so easy to do so little. So let me just ask you a question. Who has the right to decide what discipleship looks like, you or him? Never mind. Here's what God's called us to. When he says, follow me, just like he said to Andrew and Simon, just like he said to James and John, he's referring to life transformation. He's referring to it. So, so let, let me just be extra clear so, so you don't feel like I said the wrong thing. I don't know if God wants you to leave everything and follow him. I, I don't know that. And I, I don't know if he's wanting you to make huge sacrifices in your life. I wouldn't know that, and I wouldn't imply that. I'm just an average Joe guy. Um, God doesn't speak to me that way for you. But what I am saying is that he wants all of you all the time. You, You understand that there's some custom fit in this, right? Like some of you have castles, castles built for your own provision and security. And there is no test, no shaping, no stretching to your faith whatsoever because you've got it wired. And all I'm saying is you want to live there or do you want to live where God shows up and shows off? Do you want to live where he's the king and he says, let me move the pieces so that my name can be made great? I don't know what he wants to do. I I want you happy. I want you whole, I do. But maybe God wants something else. Maybe he wants something more. I have no idea. And I I, I think it seems to reason 
that he wants all of it. He wants all of you all the time. He's not okay with you showing up on Sundays and tagging up. He's not okay with just showing up once in a while. He's not okay with that. If he's the sovereign king of the universe who entered time and space for your salvation, then my, my assumptions are that he wants that type of relationship. Proximity and closeness. Now, I know some of us are wishing that uh, Jesus would offer a less expensive version of discipleship right now. Like, is there one out there that doesn't cost so much that produces the same benefits? Like, is there one where I can get heaven and glory and skip all this guy like, giving stuff? Maybe there's one of those. And, um, and he doesn't do that. And here's why. He knows the challenge between us falling in love with the gift and being confused about the gift versus the giver. And so there's always this rearrangement always coming to our senses about what satisfies. So are you scared yet? Getting too close to home, possibly? It's okay, because I want you to see the last point of the call. This will encourage you. If you're frightened about God's control, watch this. Watch this in verse 17. You probably skipped over it when we read it. And Jesus said to them, follow me, here's the phrase, and I will make you. Fishers of men. I am so glad he said it that way. Jesus takes full responsibility to changing us into followers and fishermen. He says, I'm going to shape you. You come with me and I'll rearrange how you think. I'll rearrange what you do and what you care about. You'll do things you never fathomed before. You come and follow me. I'm initiating the relationship. I'm the sustainer of the relationship and I guarantee it with my life. Nothing's going to separate you from me. And the good work I started, according to Philippians, I'm going to finish. Isn't that the promise of God for us? Amen? It's the promise of God to initiate that relationship when I didn't care, to hold me up, to transform me, to guarantee that someday I produce a harvest. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. It's scary, but it's really, really good. So let me just give you two things to think about. Some of you really need to think about the difference between believe and believe in. What popped in my head when I was finishing this was I did student ministry for 20-some years. And it's so common for students, young people, to assume that this faith thing that their parents have so wanted for them is theirs simply by the relationship. And it's not true. And you know so much, but it isn't in here, and you haven't committed to it, and it's not yours, and you haven't followed, and he's not the king of your life. And, and maybe that to, applies to more than just a student, maybe it's you, maybe you're a church person and you're so good at it that no one would know. Maybe you need to assess whether there's a difference between believe and believe in. The other thing that, that um, I think would be good to leave with, I think some of you do believe and believe in Jesus, but you have yet to follow. So can I give you one scary prayer to pray this week. If you want homework, here's a scary prayer to pray. Ask God to confront your version of Christianity. Scary, right? If it's of comfort, if you don't want to have to give of yourself, you don't have to lay something down, you don't have to follow anybody, then no pain. 
But if you really want him to have control and you want him to do great things with you, then just simply pray that, pray that prayer. God, confront my version of Christianity and give me yours. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for um, our Savior, Jesus, who came to redeem people, average, ordinary people. Not to give us some truth, but to give us life. And that you're so committed to it that you've left the Spirit of God here to shape us and to conform us into the image of our Savior. I pray, God, today that we just take stock of our life, our belief, our trust, our faith, and take stock of our following. And God, if there's some changes you want to make, make them. We trust you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.